Today, we have a special guest who's changing the mechanics of private company stock ownership and investing for the better for employees, companies, and investors. Kelly Rodriguez is the CEO of Forge, the leading private company stock exchange and investment platform. Kelly has helped build out the private market investment ecosystem at scale for Forge, bringing together a trading business, a private markets exchange with data and managed liquidity solutions for late stage private companies. Kelly and Forge also acquired IRA Services, a self-directed IRA custodian with over $13 billion in assets across 1.5 million accounts. Forge has transacted on over $10 billion in deal volume and counts many of the top private companies as customers. They've also received meaningful investment from strategic investors like Deutsche Börse, BNP Paribas, TD Ameritrade, and Munich Re. Kelly has a great background to be building Forge. He combines a background as a successful serial entrepreneur with multiple exits, a deep marketing acumen, and the expertise from leading one of the largest self-directed IRA businesses, Pensco, to a successful scale. Prior to joining Forge as CEO, Kelly was the CEO of Pensco, one of the nation's leading alternative asset custodians, which has over 16 billion of assets under custody and was sold to Opus Bank for $104 million in 2017. Kelly was also a founding investor of MFoundry, the leading provider of mobile banking services, which was acquired by FIS in 2013, he also built Totality, which he sold to Verizon in 2006, and has run an early-stage fintech venture capital fund, Operative Capital, that's made over 20 early-stage fintech investments. On today's podcast, Kelly and I discuss how private markets are evolving as liquidity mechanisms are created, how companies like Forge are unlocking a huge wealth management opportunity hidden in plain sight, where Forge is creating new accredited investors directly on their platform through secondary market liquidity, and how and why strategics like Deutsche Börse and BNP Paribas see Forge as critical to the private markets ecosystem. Thank you, Kelly, for providing a window into all the innovation happening in the private company stock market. I hope you enjoy. We're going mainstream. Kelly, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Happy to be here. Awesome. How are you? I'm great. Having a good week. That's, that's good to hear. I'm sure there's a lot going on in private markets. Where I want to start is actually rewinding the tape on your career. You've done a number of different things in a very entrepreneurial career in various spaces within the tech world. So how did you end up in the alternative investment space? Yeah, I look like a lot of founders. I started out just in software doing my first venture backed company in my 20s. And after I actually sold my third company. I started at a venture firm. That was in the late 2000, sort of seven, eight, nine timeframe. That's the first time I ever heard the term alternative assets. It just wasn't something I didn't travel in the financial industry. And it led to me becoming the CEO of an alternative asset custodian. So I really made the switch about 10 years ago from non-regulated software businesses to uh, a regulated financial tech business that focused on all. Wow. What have you learned from the differences of going from a non-regulated software business to working in a much more regulated environment? 
Yeah, there were some huge lessons for sure. I, I never really understood what dealing with regulators was about. I'd heard that before. I'd heard that it's something that you might not want to do if you can stay away from regulated businesses. But I found it to be incredibly exciting. In fact, today our business has got an ATS, alternative trading system. We've got uh, a custodial platform that's regulated. So now I embrace it as just part of our our uh, requirements to do business. Interesting. That must have been an adjustment going from a non-regulated to a regulated business. But before Forge, you actually ran this alternative asset custodian called Pensco. What did you see in Pensco that got you excited about that business? And then how has that transposed itself into what you're building today at Forge and what got you so excited about the opportunity at Forge? I guess coming up in Silicon Valley, you don't realize that most people in the world don't have access to venture investing, to private company investing. While I was at Pensco, I held accounts for a range of investment types across the old landscape, which included real estate and private notes and stock, obviously private stock. But I didn't realize just how much there was that required technology that required expertise to enable people across the world, across the U.S., to be participants in the asset class. And so that really started my thinking about what the vision for Forge ultimately became, especially around access, protections, and some of the technology challenges of getting in and out of these types of assets. Well, that kind of bled itself over into some of the things that you've done at Forge, right? You actually acquired a self-directed IRA custodian. And I'd love to get to that in a minute. But first, maybe for everybody, I would love to hear a quick overview and background on Forge, what Forge is, and then continuing the discussion of Pensco and what you did there in the self-directed IRA space, and then acquiring a self-directed IRA custodian. Why did you decide to strategically do these things when it came to building Forge? We, we think of Forge as, as an operating system for private markets. And that really is about four different things. One of the big lessons I, I took away from Pensco is I, I watched a bunch of investment platforms trying to form just on the strength of building a matching engine where a buyer and a seller could come together. And it rarely worked. And part of the reason it didn't work was because the buying and selling part is just a piece of it. Forge and the vision for Forge was really to be a combination of really four of the pieces of the ecosystem. We wanted to have a trading capability, a transactional platform to efficiently discover price, to find buyers and sellers, and to efficiently settle. We realized that data was an important part of this. So there's a component of our business which is data-oriented, and it's really about sentiments. It's about bids and asks and tracking all of the transactions that came before and at what price. There is a part of this asset class that's about where do you actually hold it? You can go to this platform and buy and sell it, but in between trades, where does it actually sit? Whose account is it in? And who knows how to control and take care of that asset for you when you're not buying and selling it? And then finally, in the private markets, there's this tremendous supply problem. If you're up in the unicorn space, there's 500 global unicorns now. We felt like we needed to build technology that plugged into companies themselves to allow founders, CEOs, and their boards to control their destiny with this technology so that they could have visibility into trading and figure out when and how they wanted to do it. So those four things 
really make up Forge. We've done about nine billion in transactions, about 4,000 trades last year, 400 companies. And so that describes Forge today. I want to touch on actually the, the last point first, which is you want private companies to be able to understand how their stock may be trading in private markets, how to help employees get liquidity. What are some of the dynamics of private markets? And as we're seeing more investors invest into private markets, and as it becomes slightly more liquid or transactional in nature in the private markets, what are some of the things that you're seeing that's making you so excited about the private markets becoming more electronified, I should say. Yeah, there's a huge confluence of, of events happening right now in, in the private markets. Obviously, we're seeing companies like Palantir who are private for 17 years. There's a whole host of private companies that as recently as 10 years ago would have been public. In the late 2000s, a company was going public and when it hit about a $500 million valuation, we've now got about a thousand companies that would be public back in those times that are staying private now. I think the, the dynamic of how long it takes and how flexible and long-term thinking is served in the private markets with, with additional capital coming into the space is part of what's fueling what's going on. So companies are staying private longer. There's additional capital access like there never was before. And investors from all around the world that weren't in private equity or venture are now really wanting to come into it to see those returns happen. So if you look at just that dynamic around companies staying private longer, the amount of capital and the long-term benefits, that's really changed the game dramatically. I think the last domino to really fall is companies themselves figuring out this is an employee benefit. This is actually something that if we had access to real market-based pricing like Forge, we could negotiate financings a lot more efficiently. We could be dealing with a range of investors that want to come into our deal that's truly global. And so I think everybody wins. I think the companies win. I think the employees win. Investors who want access get the benefits of a more democratized environment, too. And do you think that this aspect of unlocking employee liquidity within private companies actually makes it such that these companies can now stay private longer rather than have to go into the public markets and have this liquidity event for their early employees, their shareholders, investors to be able to benefit from that? Yes, but I think there's such a broad range of risk and reward. If you start with a Decacorn, that's a company, I don't know how many there are in the world now, there might be 30 or 40 of them maybe 50, that, that are worth tens of billions privately. That kind of liquidity environment is very different than what you see at the other end of the market. So when you see these marketplaces arise with really small cap, early stage Series A kind of companies, I think that's a different kind of liquidity challenge and opportunity, and it's a different kind of risk. So I think it is an interesting question. I think there's no doubt that having access to liquidity broadly having access to employee liquidity and shareholder liquidity has its benefits. I think it just um, has to be mapped against the sort of maturity level of the company and what you're trying to do. But in all cases, what's happening is it's giving companies more of a private runway to refine and build big businesses. It's interesting to see private companies stay private longer and then either employees or investors not be able to access the value creation there. So we talked a little bit about companies. Let's talk about employees. What does 
the solutions that Forge create, what does that unlock for employees? I'd have to guess that in some of these cases, like a Decacorn, for example, you have early employees who may have their largest single holding that they have. That's probably the biggest asset they have, that or maybe their house. And they're unable to unlock that to do other things, to live their life, et cetera. So what is Forge and, and others in the private market space, what does this do for em- employees? I think that employees... Um have financial needs. It's really simple. They're living in any of the tech centers of the US or abroad. These are expensive places to live for the most part. There's college expenses, there's housing expenses. I think companies and employees are now starting to realize together that this is a good thing. I'd say if you look back at the space three to five years ago, what you saw were you saw companies sort of restricting transfers and liquidity pretty broadly, and platforms were seeing companies come on and certainly wanted to satisfy their liquidity needs, but also wanted to make sure that the companies were okay with it and were supportive of this. And so I think today, the world really hasn't changed for employees. Employees need liquidity, and they're going to try and find it any place they can get it. I think what we're trying to do is create a systematic way for employees show up. If if 30 employees show up from a unicorn, the first thing we're going to do is notify a company that you have an emerging liquidity need that's coming up through your employee base. And we think it's really healthy to provide employees with a kind of visibility into when they can get it with support from the company and obviously have them get it at a fair market value with low fees, because there's all kinds of variances in the world. To the extent that we can work together with a company to make that happen, that's one of our primary objectives to do that. So I think for employees, they sometimes can't predict when they're going to need the capital. If they work at a company for seven, eight, ten years, they're going to start pushing up against their employer, and we're going to help that. So it sounds like you're almost seeing this as an employee retention tool in addition to an employee benefit. There's no doubt that once stock options vest, and you can ask any CEO, I've run four venture-backed companies myself, once all the stock options vest, those employees start thinking about, okay, well, uh, is there going to be an IPO? Is there going to be liquidity or should I start looking for another job? And I guess the other piece of this too is you've also acquired a self-directed IRA custodian. And how do you think about that in the context of what it means to provide an employee benefit as well? Because you have these employees who now have unlocked some liquidity. Is there a way for them to maybe diversify that single stock holding into other late stage unicorns on your platform or have you know their assets custody somewhere else? What was some of the thought process behind that? So there's a couple of things there. I think, first of all, the reason I acquired that business was because I wanted expertise and technology around how to hold and report on private securities. I think this is a huge issue as this asset class goes mainstream. So if you're an RIA, if you're a wealth advisor and you've got advised clients that want to buy private stock, somebody's got to custody that. It's just the regulators are going to require it. So we wanted that expertise. So we're here to support these wealth networks. So if you're at a Morgan Stanley or a Goldman or you're an independent RIA, we expect you to lean on Forge and Forge Trust to support the custody so that your client can invest in the asset class. That's the primary reason. But the second thing you mentioned is around the fact that we've created 100,000 accredited investors here. So they come here to sell stock, they sell the stock, they've got a million dollars or more, and they become an investor. They're now in the asset class. And so we want to have a place for them to stay, keep their money, potentially borrow against their asset class, 
and be able to reinvest it. When we have somebody come out of a, a senior position or even a rank and file employee or an engineer from one of these tech firms, the first thing they ask is, okay, I just, I just worked here for seven years. I just made this great money for my family. Should I be investing in Chime and Impossible Foods and one of these other amazing companies that my friend works for? And the answer is absolutely. That's how liquidity begets liquidity. It's about people participating in the asset class. I think you're hitting on something that's so important when it comes to some of these alternative asset platforms and something I've been thinking about a lot, actually, which is on-ramps. You look at something like a Coinbase, they created the on-ramp to so many investors into the crypto space. It sounds like you're doing the same thing for many, not just the CEOs or the investors who've been able to access this asset class, but for the employees who now are able to unlock that liquidity. Yeah, I'm hoping for a broader on-ramp than exists today. I think U.S. regulators and people in government should look at the performance of this asset class for an American investor and ask one simple question. If this is the highest performing asset class in the country or one of the highest performing, why shouldn't every American investor have access to it? And I understand the risks and the needs to uh, make sure people have disclosure and to have liquidity access, but that's part of what we're here to do to create a safe and sound platform for people to invest, to get information and data, and to make an informed decision. But I think over time, that's really part of the mission that we have. A lot of broader number of people access. I mean, think about back when E-Trade sort of first came on the scene and it really expanded public stock trading to a whole generation of people that had never done it before. We see the same thing happening in the private markets and that's part of Forge's vision. So you're really here to democratize access to all sorts of private assets, really starting with late stage private companies. I mean, that's the grand vision. I think there's enough infrastructure challenges in the private market space, even if we weren't expanding beyond the nine to 10 million accredited investors in the U.S. So we want to make it easier for everybody. So if you're a veteran, if you're a venture capitalist, a board member of a private company, we want to hear it. We're here to help you make it easier, reduce friction, make the costs come down. But if you've never been in the asset class, I think the grand vision is to give people access that, that didn't have access before. Because the returns are just too tremendous. If you look at the data on our platform over the last two years, if you invested in every single company you could on Forge, in the last two years, in their last round before they went public, of every company that went public, the return would boggle your mind. You wouldn't need to be a genius to pick Lyft over Uber. You just bought everything. Uh, in some form of either basket or index, you would have a phenomenal return. And I just feel like a lot more people should be participating in that. So what you're explaining really used to be the domain of many private clients at large banks. So they used to get the pre-IPO allocations. What you're saying is you've unlocked some of that closed ecosystem of people getting access to these pre-IPO stocks that then go public, do very well, and those investors benefit from them to a much larger spectrum of people. That's right. And we see this in the volume of trade that's happening in any of private companies that have done direct listings and come to trade and buy direct listings at Forge before the company is actually public. We saw this with Palantir, we saw it with Slack, Spotify, Asana, all of them. We're seeing the same thing now with the emergence of access to SPACs that aren't trading yet, but you can buy into SPAC companies on the platform. So yes, it looks like what might've been before an allocation play for a very select few in a managed IPO, now you can start to see that level of access in the uh, pre-IPO platform of Forge. Let's talk about the investor side. 
What types of investors are you serving? You mentioned a few individuals, wealth managers, private banks, larger institutions. What type of investors are you serving on Forge's platform? And then how do you think about the type of products that they may want, whether it's single assets, whether it's structured products, multi-assets, or like you mentioned, maybe an index of the entire Forge platform? Yeah. So we have about one and a half million investors in the trust and custody business today. On the platform, we've got about 300,000 signups. Now, the business and the volume that happens on Forge is about half institutional and half individual. So the institutional part of the business are RIAs, hedge funds, asset managers at banks, VCs. The other half of the volume are high net worth individuals. And as I said earlier, some of them come on as not high net worth individuals, they're sellers, they become a high net worth individual. So we really have this kind of split business where we're trying to serve individual investors. And for the most part today, people are buying single issuance stocks. They're buying single names. There's a lot being discussed around baskets. We do have a derivative note product that's available outside the U.S. You can go and buy uh, a basket of these uh, and put it on the balance sheet of one of our bank partners if you want to stack together a basket. I also know that there are a couple of asset managers now using Forge data to create products where you could buy into a basket or index-like product, semi-passive. So you're going to see those come out later on this year with more support from the market. But today, most of our current investors are buying single issuance names. And and given the spectrum of investors, you have everything from individuals to institutions. How do you think about the way that investors should be able to invest? Do you think it should be very self-directed where they are the ones choosing what they want to invest in? Do you think it should be driven by some sort of investment advice? How do you think about that construct on the platform? You know, I love this question. I'm a huge fan of the self-directed independent investor. I think what I've seen over the course of the last few years is an increasingly informed investor. So I think today, most financial advisors don't themselves study and do the work to make an informed recommendation in the private world. There is a narrow group of RIAs and FAs that really focus on this space. I think that's great. There needs to be more of those. And if you know one, you should consult with them. Three Bell Capital, I think you know those guys. They really know the space. I'd say, though, that in most cases today, what you have is is you have hobbyists and individuals who have worked in tech their whole life. I've worked in SaaS software, and so I consider myself as knowledgeable as any analyst to go and look at whether or not I want to invest in a Snowflake or a SaaS company that's emerging on the platform. So I think what you got to do is you got to commit to a subsector or an area of interest and then get inside, look at the data and do your work. And then I think you could start to see a whole revolution of self-directed private investors. We're not there yet. It's still sort of touristy in that you've got some people that come in and go, oh, Sequoia backed this company. They must know what they're doing. They just raised money. I'm just going to go and invest in that company. And so we still see a fair amount of that. And then how much diligence and data are you providing to those investors on your platform? Yeah, so we are really clearly not positioned as an advisory. So we are not going to try and ever take the place of a Goldman or an FA or an asset manager. We do have an incredible proprietary data source. We've got about 13 billion in bids and asks sitting on platform today. So people can look at, oh, this is what they want to sell XYZ company for. Here's the bid to purchase it. 
I think getting information about cap tables, previous publicly released financings or financials, and looking at the last trades that were done anonymized, yeah, you can see that here. And so I see a world where nobody should be buying or selling a private stock without coming out and checking forth. It's just, you'd be crazy not to come and check. And that's a great point, too, from a company perspective. There's now price discovery on what the market thinks that Stripe should be worth or Nubank should be worth. If it's trading on Forge at a significantly higher price than the rest of the market is willing to value it, feels like that should be information that that company should try to understand and maybe use to inform how they want to go out and raise capital from the broader private markets or even on Forge, whatever it may be. Absolutely. The data that we have will absolutely be accessible through our Forge company solution product we just announced two weeks ago. This is really meant to tell a company, hey, listen, here's what's out in the world in terms of people wanting to buy your stock. And I won't name the company. They just recently went public. But they were in 2019 doing a tender offer at so far below what the bid was out in the world. I was scratching my head why they were selling their employees stock at such a steep discount. It was just it was terrible for the employee. And to the extent that they had accessed the platform and looked at the bid ask data, they would have never sold employee stock for those discounts. So I see a world where a level of fairness comes in. This is why we're huge fans of the direct listing, because I think the direct listing really creates a fair and even playing field for anybody who's buying and selling. How does this change the way that late stage venture capital is done too? Because obviously in the private markets, it's hard to know why something is a certain price. Yeah. It seems like through this kind of price transparency that an exchange or a market like Forge has, you're able to discover price in a slightly different way. Yeah, for sure. I think late stage venture and late stage investing has changed a lot in the last 10 years. Many of the firms and funds that were pioneers of venture and the best names in venture really weren't in this part of the cap structure. They, they, they didn't write $100 million checks and beyond 10 years ago. And so you've seen a shift as the funds have gotten really big to these later stage deals I think our marketplace will really start to change that because you're going to see a lot more participation around the world. And I think venture capital has always been about discovering the next great idea with the next great management team, not about figuring out how to buy gold at half of its value late in a late stage unicorn. And I think that's part of what I observed when I saw some of the IPO pops like Snowflake. I thought, oh my gosh. Everyone thought Snowflake is the most successful IPO of the year, except here's the problem. The company ended up putting money on their balance sheet for like half of what the market paid for. So I don't know who inside the company's treasury think that's a good deal. I would have rather raised money through a direct listing and priced it at a ref price that was more in line with day three, day 20 pop. I think that the private markets will go a long way in, in creating a level of fairness and access, particularly at that moment when a company goes from private to public. I think that's that's a great point. And another thing that you said there is that you think that late stage private investing is, is really more about picking the right companies than necessarily helping to build companies in the way that an earlier stage VC might. When you think about the evolution of, of private markets and late stage private markets in general, but also Forge's platform, do you ever see a world where Forge is actually 
the fund itself investing into some of these private companies at late stage, and that actually provides the stamp of approval to some of these late stage companies raising from Forge, rather than just being a platform or a marketplace that enables people to transact at, at a bid or ask? I don't think so. I think that we, we kind of got to know our swim lane. And I, I'd say that all of the big participants that are late stage investors, some of them are now coming into Forge as investors because they want to see this exist. I think what we should be, though, is a place where there's a concentration of disclosure data, of pricing data, sentiment, and sort of like a Forge approved investment where there's enough there to ensure that you could get in it with all the information that you would need to get into it. I said another way, I see us helping late stage investors, but never being one ourselves. I see them as our customer and as somebody we want to enable. The same way I see ours, our, our role within companies. I see Forge today is in mostly unicorns. Of the 400 companies that are on Forge, I don't know of any that are valued at less than a billion dollars, and if they are, not by much. I see us going down market to start helping companies raise their Series B, raise their Series C, because we've got a megaphone and we've got standardized agreements and we've got access to data that helps the company defend their pricing. And are you seeing earlier stage companies become interested in some of those offerings around price discovery that you have on your platform? You know, I get hit every single day by a CEO who's raising a Series A saying, man, I was on Forge and there's all these companies and wow, you can buy into them. See, the problem is, is that when you go down market, the market in general, like I said earlier, is trying to figure out how to price the risk and reward of being earlier in the cycle. I still think that will be more relatively the realm of really sophisticated venture people. But I think over time, you will see more and more companies on Forge at an earlier stage. It's a different proposition and you really need to, to know what you're doing and you need to have a view of that segment or whatever that company's business model is at a much higher level of um, subject matter expertise. Well, you're bringing up something that, that's interesting because if you think about prior market structure evolution, so like equities, right? It was OTC at one point. Now it's pretty much electronified. Same with fixed income. There's uh, OTC trading and, and still is, but that's been electronified as well. It feels like we're going through a similar market structure evolution with private markets, where they, we're seeing electronification in the private markets as well, where a lot of stuff is being done on exchange, maybe not the early stages of private markets, but at the mid and late stages. So how do you think about that kind of looking at the history of market structure evolutions, how you think about what's going on in private markets in, in that market structure evolution? There's a debate going on right now about this very thing. Should the private markets look like the public markets? And I'd say the philosophers in the argument would say yes, but the practitioners and the people who are really practical understand that standardization of agreements, standardization of cap tables, of transfer and rights agreements are still quite a ways out. I'd say there's going to be a tipping point and it's not clear to me exactly where in the market maturity of a private company it will happen. But I could see a point where once you get to a certain point and you embrace the kind of disclosure and standard agreements that could re be required on a Forge platform, 
the trade would be, if I do this, I've got access to a world of, of capital, whether it's primary or secondary. And if I go there, I may not be public because I may not have the same regulations and compliance requirements, but I will make a trade to standardize for capital. And I think that is a huge market. That's how I see it. I don't think that applies to the whole private market, but I think it does apply to companies that reach a certain level. Well, you're hitting on a really interesting debate, which is, and I'm sure many founders and many investors in private markets are having this debate, which is like the minute that this market becomes more electronified and more liquid, I am now measured on a more real-time basis. And one argument in favor of private companies staying in a less electronified, less liquid market is that they have the time and patience to figure things out because they don't have to report on a quarterly reporting schedule like public companies do. So how, how do you think companies and CEOs who are right now not tied to that quarterly reporting schedule by being in the private markets feel? And how do you think investors, early stage investors, who also want to give the company that time and patience to figure things out when there may be a lot of volatility intraday or intra-year, but they still have the chance to figure things out? Well, first of all, I think quarterly reporting in and of itself doesn't change the mentality of the investor so much. You're either a long-term investor or you've got less patience and you're watching something as they progress quarter over quarter. I think we've now got a public market with much thinner looking for alpha returns and the quarterly pressure to hit numbers and to provide visibility is so intense that it creates short-term thinking and short-term strategies. I'd say in the private markets, this is one of the things that I believe is incredibly important and valuable, that long-term thinking, long-term strategies, which aren't measured quarter over quarter, they may be measured year over year. I think you'll see investors come at this marketplace with a different mentality about long-term thinking. Now, when you start disclosing, it's like me, I send my board package out uh, to somebody that's got information rights and my phone rings two days later. Hey, I've got a question. Well, you said you were going to do this and it looks a little bit different. What's that about? So I think we got to be careful about what we disclose, whether we're disclosing proprietary KPIs, probably not, uh, annual financial, annual financials, maybe, and maybe an update on strategic objectives at some level of frequency. So I think we need to think about disclosure and reporting differently in the private markets. But my main point is that the investor mentality is different. If you're going to play over down here in the private markets, look, people are trying to change the world. It doesn't happen quarter over quarter sometimes. Sometimes it takes a year to multiple years and you got to have patience. Yeah. I mean, I think you're hitting on a really interesting point, particularly for companies that over a longer time horizon are trying to figure something out and do something incredibly profound, like a SpaceX, for example, where like they're trying to do something that's incredibly capital intensive, but also could be incredibly impactful. So as a result of that, having their company stock trade on a day-to-day -day basis and people watching the movement of that stock, not just the investors, but also the founder and CEO and the employees, it feels like going down that route may not be good for company development in private markets. That, that's right. That's one of the reasons why the trade volumes, I think, are going to look really different in the private markets. I don't think you're going to see the kind of flow trade that you see in the public markets. I actually think that part of what we think of as programmatic trading or liquidity is done by a few companies today where they're offering 
a sort of annual or semi-annual disclosure and liquidity window where employees and shareholders can come in, prices set by the market, let's go ahead and disclose some things, people trade, and then they don't do it again until next year or two quarters from now. And that's part of why we built our Forge company solution because we wanted companies to be able to control that to release the pressure valve, manage employee liquidity needs, and, and provide access to a select type of investor. I think that's the other thing too. This is not a market where a company has to accept any investor in particular. It's kind of like, okay, who's setting price here in the market? Who wants to come in and do I want that class of investor on my cap table? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things that I've talked a lot about on Onco's mainstream is the arc of institutionalization and these platforms of Forge, any of these other investment platforms, whether it's into companies directly or funds, they institutionalize over time and have larger pools of capital that they have on their platform. Is that what you're seeing as well with the Forge platform? I know you have some strategic investors like a BNP Paribas and also some very large institutions as market participants on the platform. How have you thought about the institutionalization of the platform and those types of investors investing in large size and scale on Forge's platform? That was really the core business up until we did the SharesPost deal last year. We were doing the largest institutional private deals in the world. I think what we thought about here in the last couple of years is actually integrating with the big banks, with the stock exchanges, and with capital markets desks and institutional investors. So whether it's through a data feed or a fee agreement where we are going to some of the biggest banks in the world today and saying, we will trade some of our flow for you to settle on Forge. This is really the shift that you'll see in our business model in 2021 and beyond, you're going to see Forge powering many of the institutional private markets desks around the world. And so the investors that have come in, we haven't announced all of them. We will probably a little bit later in, in the quarter, but we've got a range of stock exchanges, banks, and private markets desks as investors here now. And that's the reason why they're coming in. And are they structuring products? Are they creating structured products that then they offer to their wealth clients where they're going on Forge and saying, I want the top 10, I want the top 10 private private companies by valuation and I want access to all of those companies, or I want all the food delivery companies that are in private markets and I want to create a structured product around that and give that to my my private wealth clients at my bank if I'm BNP Paribas. Is that how they're thinking about it? Yeah, so BMP was really a pioneer of this. They came to us a couple of years ago and we started talking about it, but that's precisely what they wanted to do. Their private wealth client base is astonishingly large. I can't remember the name of, or the size of it, but they're largely focused on Asia and Europe. And they wanted for precisely that reason to give a familiar structure, which in their case is this Delta One Note product, a structure where they can bring the product onto their, onto their balance sheet and offer baskets to families and high net worth investors across the globe. That's what they're doing. I think the U.S. version of that is going to look a little bit different. It might be a mutual fund. It might be an accredited only fund. But you're going to start to see these come out. But yeah, that's what they're doing. And we're in conversations with many of the large financial institutions now to offer this in the wealth networks. So I think that's the next phase of it, for sure. So it sounds like you're seeing significant demand from the high net worth channel about getting exposure to private markets. And as a result of that, their wealth advisors are having to come to Forge to do that. That's right. Now, in the last couple of years, we've got a bunch of wealth advisors come and say, hey, you know, we've got a client 
that's actually in one of these unicorns and wants to get out. But as I said before, while we've done that a lot, that same client turns around and trades and buys into something else. Interesting. Have you thought about creating products that diversify, like that give somebody who has single stock exposure, exposure to all the assets on Forge's platform? And I know banks will do this for their high net worth clients who are running a, a large private company and they have significant single stock exposure. So they'll structure a product for them that gives them exposure to 10 or 20 or 30 other private or public companies so that they have diversification um, away from that, that potentially single risk. So have you thought about things like that as well? We have. I think we struggle with, in the capacity that we're operating as an ATS, we struggle with doing anything that looks like it competes with our customers. This is a no-brainer. It's going to happen. It's probably going to come from one of our investors. TD Ameritrade is an investor in Forge. And so TD, now Schwab, together could very easily bring a product like this to market. We're talking to a number of names that you would know, Michael, in the private asset space and in the public asset space that are looking to do this. So we're here to enable them with the data and to make sure that they can run it. And we've even got some indexes and some data algorithms that could help. So that's coming. You talk about data, you talk about working with many of these wealth advisory groups, investors who want to access private markets. We've talked about this a lot before, which is education. How do you think about investor education and the role that you you play in educating investors on the merits of private markets and why they should have some exposure here. Because many of these investors, whether individuals like you mentioned before or institutions, just haven't had significant exposure to this space. So before this year, Forge really wasn't investing in marketing much at all, much less education. This is the year 2021, where we've probably got between 40 and 50% of our budget focused on content and education around the space. And this is something that I'm committed to. I figured this out back when I was at Pensco. We ran tons of educational tracks on, did you know you could invest in these alternative assets? And I think that's something that we're gonna carry forward this year. I think this is really the next generation of investment opportunity, but it does lack a level of understanding by most investors, even sophisticated investors struggle with it. You'd be surprised how many top financial advisors have never come near the asset class and are now starting to ask questions about getting their clients into it. So how do you think about education in this asset class? Because it's something everybody's talking about, but it's something that's still, to your point, a lot of people are trying to wrap their heads around. Yeah, look, I think it's a combination of sort of formats not unlike this, where somebody could spend an hour and talk about de the details of how to look at a private company, what private companies are doing from sort of their mission in life all the way down to how fundamentals work within that kind of a business model, whether it's a SaaS business, a space business, AI, driverless cars, whatever. I think we need to start building a library of content from experts that provide that and that's one side of it. And the other side of it is the data piece. It's the data and intelligence side of the equation. So I think we have an obligation to be leaders in that space. And you're going to see that from Forge in 2021. Well, First of all, that's great because I think the education is so key in this space. Another way in which I think you've created a level of trust is by having a number of strategic investors, some of which you mentioned before, that validates what you're doing as institutional in nature and of high quality. So 
why did you decide to go the route of getting strategic investors into the company? TD Ameritrade is one you mentioned. I believe you have an exchange. Deutsche Boris is an investor uh, as well. So why go that route instead of just going the traditional route of having investors, but having not necessarily having to be strategic investors? So one of the things that we believe is that the private markets are, are an enormous opportunity. And there's already uh, a tremendous involvement from the biggest banks, huge interest from the exchanges, and the emergence of capital markets desks around the world to come into it. We, we, we said, how disruptive do we need to be, do we want to be? Do we have to put other people out of business? Forge has never thought that the New York Stock Exchange should not be in business because of the emergence of the private markets. So my fundamental view has been, as we started to get big, and we started to get really big in 2019, in terms of volumes and the global nature of the business, it seemed to me that a key strategy was become partners with other members of the ecosystem. And so we started approaching banks, stock exchanges, and capital markets desks. And so what we have now is we've raised, we've raised over $100 million in the last round from those private market participants. And they are basically saying to the world, hey, Forge is the platform. Forge is not trying to put Goldman Sachs out of business, is not trying to put the New York Stock Exchange out of business. This is a platform that will enable all of the participants to do more and to do it faster and more efficient. Well, I think you're hitting on something that's actually a really interesting dynamic in the fintech space is that it's not always just trying to disrupt as the pathway to success, but sometimes it's collaborating with incumbents because they have large brands, they have institutional knowledge or know-how, and they have large asset pools. So how do you think about just in, in general in the fintech space, the dichotomy between just total disruption and collaboration with incumbents? That's clearly the way you've gone, but, but how do you think about all of that? Yeah, so I was, I was on a panel. I was watching the CEO of Marketa a couple of years ago talk about this. I was fascinated by the guy. We, we share a similar CEO mentor. And so I was listening to him talk. And one of my takeaways was, whether it's payments or whether it's private stock trading, everybody in fintech wants to see this sort of spiral down to zero no-cost trading, zero no-cost payments. The truth of the matter is, everyone's got to get paid. And my view is, we're trying to make the market more efficient. Now, what does that mean? That means the disruption is going to be in pricing. So if there were a, a, a world of brokers, whether they worked at the big banks or independents, they were getting 5%, 10% off of a transaction. When technology comes into those markets, that comes down to 1% and maybe it's 25 basis points at some point. That's how I think about the role of fintech here. I want this to be safe, efficient, and highly automated. Is it still going to cost something? Yes. Do people prey upon the inefficiencies of markets to make more money? Absolutely. We're here to clean that up. I want to make borrowing in the asset class cheap, trading, low cost, safe. And I think that's the role of fintech in my world. So if I make it less attractive, lower fees for some of the investment banks, that's going to happen because that's coming to every branch of the financial services world. Lower cost, lower fees is coming everywhere. It's a matter of scale 
and making it safe. Yeah. Well, any other piece of this too is you have two sides to your marketplace. You have the companies, and particularly with the company solutions, you want those companies to work with Forge on that. To do that, you may need large institutional pools of capital to be able to fill those orders. And you can't always do that with the individual investor. And I think there's real reason to say that it's important to collaborate with large financial institutions in some cases because that helps build a platform like this, which ultimately, to your point, reduces transaction costs for everybody going forward. But you have to do that by getting some level of institutionalization and large pools of capital on your platform to validate that. You're absolutely right, Michael. And, and, and your use of that term institutionalization, I, I'm taking that to heart and putting those institutions on my cap table. I'm saying own a piece of this. Come in and be part of the consortium that drives the operating system for the private market. And any financial institution that hears this and that is out there listening to this, call us up and join the team. And we will create flow for your businesses too. We've had a couple of people leave Forge and go become employees of these desks. And the very next call we're making is, okay, you guys want to settle on Forge? Let's do it because we'll drive flow to you and, and, and we'll support your business model. Interesting. So you're even creating people in the industry from their time at Forge, and then they go out into some of these larger banks, and then you end up working with them. So Not creating... by design. <laughs> <laughs> we get really good at this, and they get poached. <laughs> we're, trying to, we're trying to create a great workplace, but yeah, it's a hot market. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. That kind of is a great segue into what's your view on the future of private markets, and what does your vision look like, given that there's some element of working with many of these incumbents. You're building this platform to create a whole new experience transacting in private markets. So how do you think about the development of what this looks like going forward? We sort of keep a, a running internal presentation at Forge about what we want to look like two years, five years from now. I think that this is going to be a very data-driven, highly integrated offering in the next five years. I don't think this is going to look like a website that someone goes to to buy and sell uh, private shares. This is going to look like a ubiquitous platform that whether it's through your advisor, whether it's through your mobile phone, whether it's through an intermediary where you set it and set alerts, you're going to see data and trade flow in the private market be very automated and you're going to be able to get it in a number of places, and pricing is going to be pretty consistent no matter who you're coming through. I think you're going to see regulation adjust because the world wants this asset class to be safer, but they also want there to be controls in place and a, and a structure for how these asset classes are held. One of the things that I, I, I said earlier was I didn't really believe in a true marketplace or ecosystem play where it was just a bid and ask platform. That, that to me is a really immature look at it. So when I see people say, oh, we're going to go build a, a platform to buy and sell XYZ asset class, I'm like, okay, that's sort of version 1.0 thinking. I'm looking forward to a world where this is low cost. It's, uh, it's highly data driven. It's API integrated into places. So if, whether you're going to buy it through an Adapar relationship, a Robinhood platform, or through your wealth advisor at Goldman, it's going to settle on Forge and we're going to make sure we protect you and make it low cost. Well, it feels like everybody's going to need to ultimately either partner or integrate 
with a platform like this as a way to offer, if you're in the public markets and your brokerage business, you're going to need to be able to offer access to private markets. If you're a bank who wants to be able to offer private markets exposure to their clients, they're going to have to integrate. So it feels like you're right at the center of all of this really that's happening and you're the, the gateway or conduit into the private market space. Yeah, we think so. I think there's also going to be a world of synthetics where you're going to see indexes and things start to trade. In, in a more synthetic manner as well in the space. But that's a longer conversation. Interesting. That's, that's fascinating. Well, I always like to end this podcast on what's your favorite or best investment idea or investment you've made in the alternative investment space? Guys, I got two or three different answers. But in a short period of time, I was one of these patient investors that bought into Palantir probably five years ago. And so I sat around and waited. It's funny, the last three years of them being private there wasn't a lot of movement in the stock. And then now, man, their performance has been tremendous. The stock's doing great. All market volatility aside, I was really excited about Palantir five, six years ago, and I still am today as a public company. So I'm excited about that. But I think if I look forward, I'm, I'm really excited about what we talked about in terms of some of these indexes and basket products for the private market. I tell you, when I look at the data that's on our platform and I look across, the, the, the 37 companies that traded that are now public in the last two years, when we provide enablement to a product that lets you invest across those baskets, I'm telling you, I'm a customer. I'm, I'm super excited about it. And I became the CEO here partly out of my passion for investing in the private markets. I'd been in a big venture fund and I went back into operating and I thought, man, what would be the most fun would be to be a part of the development of this private market to give broader access. I get part of my venture capital excitement into it. And then as an operator, I couldn't be more excited about a company than I am Forge. I think it's just super exciting and, and gets me up in the morning. Your own company is never, ever a bad investment idea to have. So Kelly, thanks for being on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. It was, it was a pleasure to have you. Tremendous. Thank you, Michael Sisborne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going